0: My name is Alec Cowan, and you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. Hello, you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. I'm Frankie Lewis, a writer for the Arts and Culture Desk with the Daily Emerald. This is another episode of season two of Spotlight on Science. In this series, members of the University of Oregon science community sit down and talk about their research and current events in their field in language that we can all understand. Today, our guest is Professor James Schombert, an observational astronomer at UO. We spoke about the dark matter mystery, the search for alien life, NASA rumors, and so much more. Let's get to it. Cool. Um, well, again, Professor, thanks for, for doing this day, taking some time out. Um, uh, really excited to talk to you about... A lot of different stuff. I, I know you're just a you're thinking about things that other people don't normally think about in their day-to-day lives. So um, one of the things I wanted to touch on was some of your research and I know you've been looking at galaxy evolution and formation. Explain why certain um, galaxies look different. Like, why is there so much variety?
1: In their appearance? Yeah. So, uh, you look up at galaxies, and they come in a variety of different shapes, although we kind of bin them in the three categories. Mm-hmm. The ones that are nice and round and smooth, and they look elliptical, unsurprising, because mm-hmm. orbits are elliptical. Mm-hmm. Those that look like spiral pinwheels, and we cleverly give them the title spiral galaxies, yeah. they tend to be younger, bluer, yeah. more activity. And then everything else gets dumped into irregular.
0: And explain why uh, you mentioned that the Younger Galaxies are blue. Explain why that's the case because that's also interesting. So
1: Younger is actually a misnomer in the sense that uh, blue means hot. This is my spouse is an art history major. She hates this. But Uh in in physics, red means cool and blue means hot because if you put a poker in the fire, it goes red, then orange, then green, then blue. So, uh it's opposite in the art world, in the art world, red is a hot color, right, blue is right. a cool cup. Well, it's, most anyway. people
0: only see red. They never get to see the blue hot, so they just yeah, assume reds, I yeah.
1: I think it's because in real life you don't experience those kinds of temperatures on a regular basis. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so blue means hot. Hot also means the star is extremely energetic. Its engine is running really fast. Engines that run really fast run really short. So, Young stars are hot and blue, or I should say, yeah. blue stars are yeah. hot and will be young. So yes, they exactly. They will survive for a short amount of time. Yeah, red stars tend to be older stars, aged stars.
0: And how does that relate to um, uh, cosmologists' dating of the universe? Right.
1: So now you know that the farther away you look, the farther back in time you're looking. Sure. Yeah. So long time ago, all stars were made of many types of ages, and the bright blue stars would be the ones that would be obvious. Yeah. They're the ones that shine the brightest. As time passes, those stars die. Then only the green stars are left, and then only the red stars are left. So, you expect to see, as you look farther and farther away, as you look farther and farther back in time, you see bluer and bluer galaxies, and that's a well-known phenomenon. Yeah.
0: And and that helps um, cosmologists date the universe because they can see these galaxies farther away, which is kind of a weird concept to think about that you're looking farther away you look, you're actually looking back in time.
1: Yeah, we kind of do it the other way around. I think a, a paleontologist picks up a bone or a fossil and looks at the layers of soil around it and says, oh, this fossil is a million years old and they use that information to do their dating. We kind of do it the other way around. We don't look at the galaxy and say, oh, that galaxy is a such and such age. Mm-hmm. We know how old it is by how far away it is.
0: Interesting, okay. Um, and you discovered um, the dwarf spiral galaxy. Yes. So. Um, what was that discovery like, and what's special about a dwarf uh, spiral?
1: Notably un- unexciting. Um, <laughs> so uh, and you put the first thing you do in science is put things in boxes, right? Mm. You, find something new, you put it in a box. Hmm. Taxonomy is find a new species of bird, you compare it to other species of sure, bird. sure. So like I said, the galaxies are elliptical, spirals, irregulars. And that's sort of a sideways classification on how they look. There's a orthogonal classification that is on how big they are. So some galaxies are really big, some galaxies are really small. Interestingly enough, when you look at them in a picture, you can't tell. There's <laughs> there's no signpost on them to say this is a big galaxy or a small galaxy. Right. So you have to figure out their distance, and you can tell if it's a big galaxy. So giant galaxies, dwarf galaxies mm. is the way the system is put. And surprisingly, when Hubble laid out the sequence in 1930, and a guy named Alan Sandage improved upon it in the 60s, we had... Giant ellipticals, giant spirals, giant irregulars. And we had dwarf ellipticals, and dwarf irregulars, and no dwarf spirals. Hmm. So it was a missing link. Mm. And I stumbled on the missing link when I was working on the Palomar Sky Survey.
0: Really? Well, how did you stumble on it? Like, describe
1: some of that. Uh, So the Palomar Sky Survey is the last of the great photographic surveys of the sky Now in the 21st century, we do it with electronics. The telescopes are automated. They scan the skies. and Computers look at the pictures, right? Mm -hmm. But Back in my day, we took giant photographic plates and we put them on light boxes and we stared at them. And I was very bored doing this work. So I would take the plates and put it on the light box. On cloudy evenings, there was nothing Mm -hmm. to do. And I had these overlay sheets that showed me the known galaxies. Mm -hmm. So you put that down and then you would say, well, look, here's something that's not, not on yeah. something new. Yeah. And I would circle those and make a note, come back and follow up on them with larger telescopes and radio telescopes. And so they got bumped into in that fashion.
0: Huh, and then one, so one of those dots just happened to be a dwarf yeah, spiral. Yeah, it
1: wasn't a dot as much, it was a, a ghost. Oh, okay. So two, thing, two things can be invisible. Something can be really small and really faint and you can't see it unless mm-hmm. you just magnify more some things can be very low in density. Hmm. And so uh, think of them as you can only see them with your peripheral vision kind of thing. They're just barely there. They may be diffuse. They may so be spread thin, out. Yeah. Thin is a good way of thinking yeah. too.
0: Well, let's move into some uh, time and universe theory. I know that's some uh, something that really fascinated me when you were talking about it. Um, so We touched on this a little bit, but explain the connection between time and space. I think that's a pretty fundamental thing you have to understand before we go on to more of the advanced discussion, I guess.
1: So this travels down many roads, and this is one of the more disappointing things when you try to teach, is that uh, these are concepts that we can really only understand with that awful M-word, math. (laughs) It, math truly is a window, it's like putting on a different pair of glasses mm. and seeing something. So the space-time connection is something that was given to us first by Einstein way back in the early 20th century. It is a linking of two concepts that you not necessarily would have said had anything to do with each other. We can move around in space, we can jump up and down, we can go back and forth, mm. but we really do not have any control on time. We move forward in time, can't move backward in exactly. time. Exactly. Can't seem to slow down time. Whereas I have so much control on space, yeah. I have no control whatsoever on time. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't too su- surprising that people disassociated those two concepts, space yeah. and time, as being totally separate. Mm-hmm. And the big surprise from Einstein, of course, is that they are actually connected. And in fact, the... Uh, result of him connecting space and time came up with a new theory of gravity which is what we call general relativity hmm. that's kind of the local framework yeah and that's the thing that's relatively easy to teach with a little bit of calculus mm-hmm. you think of uh time as simply another kind of dimension hmm. you add the three of space and yeah. the one of time and you get 4d space time yeah it's a little bit of cheat or lie because the time dimension comes in as an imaginary number and so it does not have the same characteristics as space. Hmm, okay. And you probably know that because yeah, exactly, we, yeah. we can't seem yeah. to change the speed of yeah. this time. Although if you travel faster, relatively it says your clocks slow down. So you do have right. some control. Yeah. In my office, I have a little box that says time machine. Hit switch. You will move forward in time. <laughs> so we naturally have that kind of control yeah. we can control how fast we go forward in time. Yeah. But we can't travel back in time and we can't stop time. Yeah. So. Now, you touch on,
0: though, time is relative. So we can... There is some kind of, um, kind of loophole manipulation we can do where it uh, involves black holes. I don't know if you wanted to right. touch on that a little bit, too. So
1: the local f- description of space-time is this very nice connection between two. And then as you get to larger and larger scales the space-time math, the space-time framework, takes on a very different flavor. You can talk about local curvature, you can talk about things near the Earth, we can talk about the sun's curvature, starlight being deflected by the sun, et cetera, et cetera. You can go even a little more extreme. Neutron stars, a little more extreme black holes. You get the black holes, you start seeing some very interesting limits, event horizons and barriers and horizons. And then you can take it to the next level, which is you have now this local ruler, so to speak, rulers and clocks. How does this describe the entire universe? And so when you leap to the next level, you use the general relativity, the space-time formulation to describe Mm -hmm. the structure of the universe as a four-dimensional object. And suddenly you open up a lot of understanding for why Mm. things farther away look the way they do, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm wondering if we
0: can move more into um, kind of a dark matter, which is kind of a concept that I know is contentious in the world of cosmology in a way.
1: Well, contentious only in the sense that no one's been actually able to grab it.
0: Right, right. Well, explain some of that. So why can't we figure out what dark matter is? So dark
1: matter starts with motion. You look out there in the universe, and once you get beyond the Earth, everything is dominated by gravity. The fundamental forces, the strong force, the weak force, are atomic forces and only apply to atoms. Electromagnetism, well, Earth's got a magnetic field, Jupiter's got a magnetic field, but mm-hmm. after a few thousand kilometers, that kind of weakens. It right. doesn't have a strong effect. So the only thing on cosmological distances is gravity. Starting way back into the 50s, 40s, 60s, people would see motion. Galaxies spinning, galaxies and clusters moving, and you don't see, actually see the movie. you measure their velocities, it takes millions of years yeah. for the detectable motion. But in any case, people would measure motion and they would see things moving way too fast for what you saw. Hmm. okay. We see light, light comes from stars, yeah. light comes from gas, it comes from atoms. We call normal matter baryons, mm. for lack of a better term, the particle physicist gave us this. Yeah. Anything made of protons and neutrons is called a baryon. So all the elements of the periodic table, and everything that makes up stars is baryons. You see baryons through light. They emit light. Mm -hmm. The motion that you were seeing was radically out of sync with what you saw with the light, such that the light only accounted for a few percent of the mass that you would see from motion.
0: Right, because there has to be something that has a big enough gravitational pull to
1: drag these things at fast enough speeds. Exactly. So you propose... A substance that you can't see, i.e. dark, Mm -hmm. that has gravity, i.e. matter, Matter. dark
0: matter. There you go. And you, I think, have some theories about what dark matter might be. um, And there's some competing theories out there. So I don't know if you want to touch on some of those. So
1: I have no theories about dark matter, for I am a pure observer. Okay. And I do not speculate. Okay. Straight facts. I work with people who speculate, <laughs> uh-huh. and I'm happy to support their speculations. So we have gone now. The, the first key results on dark matter was rotating galaxies in the 1960s, mm-hmm. and it has now been almost 50 years since that discovery, and we've made no inroads into figuring out what dark matter is. Even though mm. we know supposedly the substance is out there, Nothing's been seen.
0: So really, not like no inroads, no leads Nothing. or anything. No leads. Huh. There
1: have been lots and lots of ideas of the kind of thing dark matter might be, and the particle physicists have lots and lots of exotic ideas. They have lots and lots of things. Black holes was an obvious first yeah. choice. There were not enough seen. Pan didn't, out. Yeah, didn't pan out. So lots and lots of ideas and lots and lots of dark matter particles have been proposed these would be particles that were very different from baryons yeah by definition they cannot interact with the baryons otherwise we would see the light light yeah sure so all sorts of exotic things mm-hmm. and millions of dollars have been spent hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent building dark matter detectors to look for these exotic particles mm. which is a tough tough science for you don't know what you're looking for right So you're basically trying to build some device that looks for anything, but yeah, hope you bump into something. Yeah. So, great deal of our theoretical community has been energized with this in the last 25 years with this problem.
0: Yeah. And why is it? I don't know why. Why has so much money been spent on this? I mean, why is it such a big thing? Why Why don't people just give up? I
1: mean, give up. Well, one reason people don't give up is the first person who finds a dark matter particle instantly wins a Nobel Prize. Right, exactly, yeah. So people don't give up because it is such an intriguing problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have been chasing intriguing problems since the 14th century. And people would not give up back then. So this is not surprising. People don't give up. It's just too, too mysterious to to let go. Wouldn't be the
0: nature of a scientist to give up.
1: Yeah. And, you know, 98% of the universe made of this substance. So it's clearly a big, big problem. Yeah. It's considered the singular large problem for modern astrophysics, I would Mm. say. In any case, uh, people like myself, we read these papers about the speculation and Occasionally they'll come up with a prediction that I can check if I go and look at my galaxies, but usually they're not connected very well. Hmm. Uh Except for the very key thing that the baryons, the atoms, cannot talk to the dark matter, except through gravity. That they must be separate substances Hmm. and not connected in any fashion. The atoms do their thing, the dark matter does this thing. Mm -hmm. They talk only through the gravitational pull. Hmm. A couple of my colleagues and I said, it's time to back up, go back to the origins of this problem, rotating galaxies. And we, using a new telescope in space, the Spitzer Space Telescope, which allows us to see into the far infrared, the far infrared is a very intriguing place to look at stars, for you only see the mass Hmm. of the stars in the far infrared. Like we were saying before, blue stars are kind of annoying because there are only a few of them, but they're so bright Kind of they block out, out everything. everything. Yeah, so exactly. You, when you go to the infrared, that's no longer a problem. Mm. So, using new data from the Spitzer Space Telescope, we revisited this problem, and we found an intriguing characteristic mm. to the dark matter: is that they are strongly coupled to the baryons.
0: Mm. So, what, is, what does that mean? What does it mean? Strongly coupled strong means coupled? that
1: if you tell me where the stars and gas are in the galaxy and how much is there. I can tell you exactly how much dark matter there is. Hmm. Okay. Since they don't work together, there shouldn't be that connection. Hmm. In fact, this is a real, real problem for people who think about dark matter is that it is the number one characteristic of dark matter is they do not interact with regular atoms. Right. And yet we find that they do. Some interaction. In some fashion. Yeah. Yeah. It is where the some fashion part comes is where things get controversial. Yeah. So just stating right up front, our initial results are purely empirical, purely observational. The dark matter and the baryons, the regular atoms, are strongly correlated hmm. in such that such a fashion that it looks like a new natural law. Wow. And it's something that has to be dealt with just in an empirical fashion. Interesting. What does it mean? Yeah either hundreds of millions of dollars are being wasted. (laughs) It means hundreds of millions of dollars are being wasted looking for particles that may not exist. And excitingly, it proposes new dark physics. So this is a catchphrase that's used to describe the problem of dark matter and dark energy, Mm. is that there's clearly something missing in our understanding. Mm. How do we make inroads into this? Our results appear to be the first step on that path.
0: Wow. That's exciting. And when did you, I mean, what did you think when you you came up with those results? Like, what was your initial reaction? I
1: initially threw my head in the sand (laughs) and hid as much as possible, for I hate that kind of controversy. My colleagues jumped up screaming and yelling to the community. Yeah. And the death threats we're getting from the particle community are (laughs) well-known. Yikes. It's, It's a difficult time. Sociology of science, as you know from the class, is a series of sort of jumps.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, something comes along, everybody says, no, 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 no. And then the younger generation says, oh, this is interesting. Let's follow up on this. The yeah. older generation dies out, the new idea becomes accepted. Yeah.
0: it's sounds like it kind of delayed, like, you know, one step back, then two steps forward, kind of every time. Very much so. Yeah. They're, they're
1: called paradigm shifts for people who are... Yeah, and They come in big ones, like when Einstein gave us space-time. Right. Or when Galileo gave us the heliocentric yes. model versus yeah. geocentric. Yeah. They, tend, they can come in big leaps. They also come in little leaps. Mm-hmm. And we're fairly confident this is a signal that we're entering a shift. Hmm. And so there's a lot of emotional and sociological friction that goes with that.
0: Hmm. Well, interesting. Well, I want to follow up with you on that maybe in the, in the coming months. Um, I want to move on to the search for alien life because that was yes. something we touched on at the end of class that um, – is much more interesting I think than people think. So,
1: why is the search for alien life much more than just a curiosity experiment? So, yes, it's much more important than yeah. many issues. We put it in the cosmology course at the end for it's probably the last cosmological question that we need to answer. Age of the universe, what's going to happen to the universe, open closed universe, mm-hmm. those kinds of things are more physically oriented. Yeah. But not being alone is increasingly apparent. As being an extremely important question. Mm-hmm. Most people's reaction to that is not looking for aliens sounds like science fiction it sounds like a waste of time. Yeah. But uh, as we stated in the course the galaxy is extremely old. Tens of billions of years in age. Mm-hmm. Our planet's only 4 billion. Human beings have only been around for about 200,000. Yeah. So in terms of the cosmic time scale, civilizations are very quick to come about. And technology is overwhelming. It doesn't take much technology to build robots and send them out into the universe. So the big mystery is since there's been plenty of time before us, where were all the ancient civilizations that should have at least explored if not colonized the galaxy? The immediate answer it leaps to mind is they killed themselves off. It's pretty scary to think about. Yeah. Before 1945, I don't think anybody would have entertained that idea. Yeah. And then after the development of atomic weapons, when it looked like it was possible to extinguish civilization. Yeah. And now we have many other tools to extinguish civilization by. uh, It becomes even more salient that if this is true, that intelligent civilizations have a limited lifetime We are doomed. Yeah. So this is literally a death sentence, a cancer diagnosis that we're worried about finding other aliens would back that off. Yeah. That other civilizations could survive, could pass through this perhaps very dangerous phase in our history. And do you think we will ever discover alien life? I do not know. You go back and forth. If you're in your pessimistic mood and you believe civilizations do have limited lifetime, then Mm -hmm. the answer is no. Mm -hmm. There are probably millions of planets out there with decaying artifacts from ancient civilizations that kill themselves off. That is certainly true. I think there are certainly artifacts out there. Whether there's anybody left around is a matter of coincidence in some sense we come along here it is 10.5 billion years after the galaxy was put together we've had 4.5 billion years to get to where we are now so it's more kind of like dumb luck yeah whether we'll find anybody Hmm. so the answer is i don't know because it's kind of a it's kind of a luck of the draw thing
0: yeah we're just gonna have to get lucky hopefully
1: it's it's beginning to look increasingly like either civilizations reach some level of technological sophistication that they don't have any reason to come around and talk to us. Yeah, That's the other great hope. And so if, if we bump into anybody, it'll be because of our searching, not because of their searching for us. Interesting. Um, now, quickly, we're in, I and we're getting to the end of our rope here.
0: Um, I want to touch on your time at NASA a little bit, too, because I think that's uh, a really unique experience that obviously most people don't get to say they did. Um, so what did you work on uh, while you were at NASA?
1: So. NASA's kind of a big thing there. I had two stints at NASA. One of them was at Caltech running a infrared sky survey. So I'd worked on the Palomar Sky Survey, yeah. which was an optical telescope. It okay. seemed very natural I would move over to an infrared sky survey and did that work for a couple of years. Cool. And then I did a punishment detail at uh, NASA headquarters, helping to run grant programs and advise policy and things like that. Hmm. And... Normally, that's considered punishment detail, but I was born and raised in Washington, D.C., so for me, it was going home for a short time, for oh, two years. Okay. And I met my current spouse while I was on that duty, so cool. there was that aspect to it. There you go. So I look back upon that as sort of a romantic interlude between my science duties.
0: <laughs> what was the, um, like the wildest concept at NASA that you heard proposed that never made it to production?
1: They get lots and lots of really crazy things. And they get lots and lots of very serious things that seem crazy. Yeah. So the craziest craziest stuff is people who would send proposals for alien space drives, which was interesting because they weren't trying to look for alien space drives. They were trying to improve on the technology that they claimed they already had. Yeah. So those ones were great. Okay. And they would come to the astrophysics division. I would send them down to space engineering. And I would get a response from space engineering saying, we don't send you our crazies. You don't yeah. send us your crazies. <laughs> So those kinds of things are handled. Actually, in a very polite fashion, you contact the person and say, this is very interesting, but we really simply don't have resources to commit to this. And let us know when you get a marketable engine and we'll talk.
0: Yeah, exactly. So,
1: but then the science, science stuff that yeah. was, was crazy. It was just people who had really brilliant ideas, but they were ex- extremely risky. And you have to balance um, results. Bang for buck. Yeah, You have to balance how much science you think you're going to get for the amount of money that they're asking for. So
0: what was an example of one of those types of risk-reward projects?
1: (laughs) There was a good numerical relativity one that I thought was – it was extremely high risk. They were basically going to model on supercomputers colliding black holes and things like that. Now, this was 25, 30 years ago Mm -hmm. before people had thought about gravity waves and things like that before Lego had been constructed. Back then, that looked like highly risk, high risk. Who would ever use this information? Mm -hmm. And now it's the key discovery of 2017, the colliding black holes. So uh, at the time, highly risky, but as time has evolved, come to find out that that kind of work was critical. Vindicated, yeah. It was vindicated. Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, Um, so maybe getting more personal stuff here. Um, When did you know you wanted to be an astronomer, and, <laughs> and what was going on in your life at the time? Sorry, my children asked me this
1: last night. Oh, um, great! So you're prepared then? So I am the worst possible example to offer to college students. Uh oh. For I was in—I can remember being in fifth grade. And mm-hmm. Always loved science and math. I liked everything. I liked yeah. history. I'm one of these people just—just just a positive
0: it. guy. Yeah.
1: You know? Yeah. Back then, you know, fifth grade, everything looks pretty straight. It's great. Right? Yeah. Going good. Yeah. I mean, we're po- can't go possibly get worse. Yeah. <laughs> And in fifth grade, we were studying oceanography and astronomy. And I just said to myself, I want to do one of these. And then I realized I couldn't swim. And I said, you know,
0: I'm th- take the I other think other I'll go one. the yeah. astronomy <laughs> route.
1: And so I did that. I started down the astronomy track. When I was in high school, I was in an astronomy club. When I went to undergraduate college, I was an astronomy major, which was relatively rare. Mm-hmm. Graduate school in astronomy, then postdocs, postdocs, NASA professorship. At any point on that trail, it could have been stopped. Yeah. Of the hundred people that I remember in our undergraduates class, there's only two of us left. Wow. So the left
0: meaning like still being a,
1: still doing yeah, astronomy. Exactly. There's just too many. There are too many barriers along the way. There just aren't enough jobs. We we say there's a STEM crisis in this country, and we need more STEM students. No, we don't. We don't have jobs for them. <laughs> we don't. Have, we don't have enough professorships. We don't have enough you know, industry jobs, we yeah. don't have enough government jobs for research scientists. So huh. it's an odd thing to invite people to join into this crusade and then have nothing for them to do employment-wise once yeah. they get out of the, their school. So it's an odd thing for me. to students ask me, you know, how did, how did you get started? How did you make these choices? Well, I never really did. Hmm. I just got on that path when I was very young and through sheer luck, and people want to say, oh, it was brilliant. So I was no. By sheer luck... Hmm. I got through a lot of the barriers and ended up.
0: Did you have a lot of people telling you to to give it up or to?
1: Yes, um, I have. Yeah. a couple letters I keep in a file at home. <laughs> One was from my graduate advisor in my second year of graduate school, saying, "You're not going to make it. Wow, that you just don't have the the, the right thing." And I think it was a personality difference. It, huh. I, I enjoyed doing other things besides 24 hours behind a computer. Yeah. And so I think there was that aspect that they were concerned that my other interests would be distracting. Jeez.
0: I mean, you took the time to – I mean, was it lengthy? Was it? Did he really, really get after you or was it pretty passive-aggressive?
1: It was formal. Okay. It was a formal letter saying, this is a point for you to decide. And the underlying current was, we're not going to pass you in your exams. Wow. you don't think you're going to pass your exams. Huh. And I just have a long history of ignoring what other people have to say. <laughs>
0: that's a good attitude because it got you this Well, far, so. not necessarily. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if the cancer doctor says, time for chemo, you it's should listen to You probably do expert. that. Yeah, exactly. But in this case, I felt like, I, I honestly felt they had misinterpreted my skills and had seen my personality more than my skills, and that's a frequent problem with people. Mm. And it's why I always tell students, put your best foot forward. I mean, how can you become famous? Well, there are two ways. You can do something fantastic and be remembered by the historians, or you can go to a meeting and punch the most prominent <laughs> astronomers. You'll be infamous Yeah, you exactly. remember your name. Yeah. So always put your best foot forward type of thing mm. and try to present you know, your best characteristics. I think I, could, if I could go back in time, which we can't, we already talked about, yeah. I would have changed a little bit. I would have been more, perhaps more formal, less myself in those huh. early days.
0: This is a tricky question. This will be the last one. Uh, what's one thing you've never been asked before that you wish someone would have asked?
1: One thing I've been asked before that I wish? Why well, don't like people asking me anything. <laughs> my, my children always make fun of me for being such a people person. <laughs>
0: I and mean, it, can, it can be anything, any point in your, in your life or career, about any topic. It doesn't even have to be about cosmology at all.
1: I, I've often wished that colleagues, when we're actually doing work together and we spend a great deal of our time, focused merely on the problems and the solutions and the analytic side of the business – very rarely even when we're on casual at dinner mode do we actually talk about what this means and what the big picture is hmm. the few times we have those conversations they always get distracted they always people i mean it's very it's very hard to look at our field from the outside you think of it as something magnificent, mysterious. For me, it's yeah. 9 to 5. Right, so, exactly. Damn, got to get through that yeah. uh, analytic. I got to get that program written today. Yeah. You know? yeah, And then I go home and it's like, oh, play with the kids, watch yeah. TV or something like that. So it's a job. Yeah. And so it's very hard to step back. And a, a couple of my colleagues will sit back and try to put things in a bigger perspective. Those conversations are actually very rare, hmm. surprisingly so considering what we do. Yeah. I think mostly because people are a little intimidated themselves and a little bit because we're surprisingly humble and don't really want to make these big questions and try to voice our own opinions. It's my opinion. It's not something that may be right. Yeah. So I wish people would ask more about opinions.
0: Interesting. Uh, yeah, I think you've touched on a good point that cosmology is such a – it's so broad that in a sense it's hard to relate to and it's so – I could see someone asking, you know, well, who cares if what dark matter is made out of? I mean, right. who cares what galaxies are doing out way out there? I mean, if it doesn't, if it's not pertinent to my day to day life, why should I care
1: about it? it? There are two things I've always said. One, it's, it's dirty business, but somebody's got to do it. right? Mm-hmm. And the other is it, it's, um, it, it has absolutely the least amount of relevance to our everyday lives. It's not new materials. It's not a new cure for cancer. It's really way beyond. It's almost philosophy. It's almost literature in that context. Matter of fact, I think astronomy and cosmology is about as close as you can get to philosophy, yet come up with the answer. A lot of it was was initially based on philosophy. Yes. I think some of the questions that are being asked were things that that philosophers asked, but I don't think they were looking for answers. They were just trying to put together good questions. So it's a funny world to live in. We take it seriously. It's yeah. our job. Yeah. We fight for grant money, we fight for support. Yet when we back off at the end of the day, we don't offer society anything really concrete. Maybe a little perspective on what the big picture is, maybe the kind of questions you might've asked your priest, maybe the kind of questions you might've asked uh, you know, your, your, your Buddhist advisor, mm. you know, those kinds of things. We do it a little more analytically, we do it a little more scientifically. But uh, it's a funny field to be in when you started, because there's a little guilt that you're not making mm. significant progress to help society.
0: There you go. Well, I think you do add something to society. I'm interested in it, so, um, well, I think I think there's definitely value in it. I mean, you can see uh, that mean some of the most popular, you know, science documentaries and stuff are all about astrophysicists and galaxies and stuff so people are fascinated with it um so I, think I think that the a sign topic. of
1: a, a very healthy civilization is one that explores the edges explores the things that even going back to the stone ages were kind of the unknowns so sometimes i like to say that's what i'm doing i'm exploring yeah. the edges of the exotic ideas yeah somebody's got to do
0: it but the universe doesn't really i mean doesn't really have yeah. an edge
1: does it not that kind of yeah. edge. we have to get, that can be but for you, another day you yeah. don't want an edge <laughs> you, you want an ending you know super bowl yeah. coming up and it's like oh, yeah oh, no more football there's next season yeah
0: <laughs> well thank you again professor Schombert, for coming by today really appreciate it um you know anytime you want to come back My let me you know great This was our fourth episode of Season 2 of Spotlight on Science. Big thanks to Professor Schombert for being our guest today. I'm Frankie Lewis. If you'd like to recommend a member of the UO Science community for us to interview, leave us a comment on SoundCloud or at thedailyemerald.com. The music in this episode is Zombie Disco by Six Umbrellas, which we found on freemusicarchive.org. To hear more from the Emerald Podcast Network, why wouldn't you? You can subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and listen to these episodes right on the Emerald homepage at dailyemerald.com. Thanks for listening.